0: mentioned earlier it's good to be back with you all today um, I missed being with you all greatly I kind of fe- i I felt it all week it felt really weird throughout the week uh, that was actually the first um, first service period that I've missed and I believe about twenty years and so that was very uh very different for me um, part of that is, of course you know I'm a pastor and I have to be at church you know <laughs> the many years. But I also enjoy being with God's people. Um, Today we're going to be continuing in our series in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through chapter 11 verse 40 is the section that we're in looking at the idea of holding on to the greater than. Um, We're going to be in the second part of this section today, particularly verses 26 through 31. So let's hear... Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, through the end of the chapter. Last time we read the entirety of the section. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Near, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let us pray. Our Father, we are privileged to have this your word. And we pray, O Father, that you would reveal what is in this word to each of our hearts. That it would be real to us. That we would hold on to it. That we would believe it. And that we would live by it, O Lord. We pray, O Father, that you would chain us to what your word has. That we might freely live and serve you. And we pray these things, O Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time when we were in the book of Hebrews, uh, we looked at chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, and we saw a series of three exhortations. And again, we're in this section, which uh, is the beginning of the, this is what we've been talking about, Jesus and how he is the greater than. Now, because of that, this is how we ought to respond, and how we ought to live. And in this section, we've been, we're learning about the primacy of holding on to Christ. We saw last time uh, three exhortations, starting in verse 22, based, on the, based upon the fact of what we have in Christ, based upon the fact that there's a new and living way that's been opened for us through the curtain, through His flesh. Because we have such a great high priest, first of all, he said, Let us draw near, reiterating things that had already been said in the book of Hebrews in summary fashion. Let us draw near to God in Christ Jesus because we've been made clean. He then says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That is to hold on to Christ, to believe him. And to hold on to him like nothing else matters, because in the light of eternity, nothing else really does matter. And then to let us consider, with regards to one another, how we might stir each other up to love and good works. That uh, doing these things is not a matter of private, personal, simply a matter of private and personal piety. But it is a matter of one another, to consider one another I am not called upon to stir myself up but to stir you up just as you are not called upon to stir yourself up but called to stir me up and to exhort me to good works and love as you as I am to you and we are to one another. And then we see here uh, that's all in this context. All those exhortations are in this context, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near that this highlights the importance of assembling together with God's people, assembling together and worshiping together. And we looked at different reasons that we give. Of course, there are legitimate reasons by which someone can habitually uh, that might not be there because of, <clears throat> because of providential circumstances or a lengthy illness by which would, or, or other things that may cause it. But in the ordinary course of events, it is of utmost importance to us that we assemble together because that is vital to our drawing near, to our holding on, and we cannot consider how to stir one another up if we're not around each other. And all this is highlighted... And is given such, such importance because of what's coming next. As we're going to see today, we are playing with fire, literally and eternally, impossibly eternally, if we neglect such a great salvation, such a great savior, such a great hope. This is not to say that the true believer can lose their salvation. We're going, it's going to be just like Hebrews chapter 6, when we looked at earlier in our book, look through the book of Hebrews. But if we try to go it alone, if we neglect drawing near, if we neglect holding on, if we are not hearing the input of others into our lives, we are putting ourselves at risk of burning out, losing steam, growing cold, and of turning from the Savior. We see the significance of it here in this passage, which is another passage like Hebrews chapter 6 that has caused interpreters great difficulty and because of misinterpretation has vexed, that's caused harm, to the conscience of genuine believers, especially those who have a very sensitive conscience. We see see the significance of of it here. For if we, as we're going to see, leave the Savior and turn from the Gospel, as we've stated in previous sermons, what are we to what are we turning? We're not turning to something else. We're turning to nothing. We're turning to nothing. As I mentioned earlier, this is not something, as we'll see in later verses of this set section, that one who that is true of one who truly belongs to Christ. Rather, it is a dreadful warning and admonishment to the false professor, and yet at the same time serves as great encouragement to the one who is in faith. So, what is the warning that is in this passage? What is it that is laid out before us? Well, we see that in the first couple of verses of 26 through 31, particularly verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin. Now, immediately we hear this, and if we don't understand it right, we might say this. So I came to faith in Christ. The very next day, I did sin deliberately. Do I no longer have a sacrifice for my sin? That is not what the text is saying, as we're going to see in just a little bit. That is, is this giving support to the error of a group of ancient heretics known as the Novatians? The Novatians argued this, that after conversion, particular after baptism, any single sin would disqualify someone for eternal life with God in Christ Jesus. It was actually quite common in early Christian history. We oftentimes look at the first few hundred years of church history and say, everything was perfect and great. We can just read a few letters of the New Testament and see that not everything was perfect and great. It was common among some. Because of the influence of the Novatians, to make a profession of faith in Christ Jesus, but wait until the very last minute to get baptized. Because it was after that baptism and the Novation thinking that if you committed that sin, that you would then be disqualified. This text is not, as we're going to see, giving support to the Novation heresy. So, what is it then to sin? deliberately what is it that we've been talking about in this passage what did we see in verses 19 through 25 which what were the what were the exhortations to draw near to hold on and consider how to stir one another up to love and good works what is it that the book of Hebrews has been expounding upon we've seen In those previous exhortations, draw near. What does that mean? Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. To what? Hold on to Christ. And to stir one another up in love and good works. And what is it that Hebrews has been expounding upon? The superiority of Christ. The one who is the better than. The one who is greater than the angels. The one who is greater than the prophets. Uh, than, than the priesthood. Of course, he's also greater than the prophets, but greater than the priesthood. <clears throat> the one who is the greater sacrifice. We've been expounding upon the superiority of Christ Jesus. We also see at the end of this passage, uh, at the in part of this section, in particular the very end of chapter 10, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And he also says in verses 35 and 30, 35, in verse 35, <clears throat> therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So in light of all that, we can say this, to sin deliberately in this context is not, that, is not the act of committing a sin or even a series of sin, or even struggling with sinful behavior, thoughts, and feelings. That is something is true of every Christian. We are in a battle against sin, and we are always fighting against those things. What is it that Christ has come to do away with? What is it that we are removed from when we come to faith in Christ? What is it that Jesus' sacrifice did that none of the previous sacrifices could do? Remove sin forgive sin. What are we still in if we are outside of Christ? We are in sin under the penalty of sin. so to deliberately continue in sin is this to knowingly and will it willingly renounce the grace of. That we have received in Christ Jesus and thus going on in our sin. That is what it is in this particular passage. To knowingly and willingly renounce the grace that we have received in Christ Jesus. So we mentioned it's given a positive spin in verse 10. At the end of verse 10. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, there is the habit of practicing sin. You know, First John addresses that the one who refuses to repent of sin um, is in danger. That's entirely that, that's demonstrating one who is not tied to Christ Jesus. But to exist outside of Christ is to exist in sin. John Owen says of this, this sinning deliberately does not refer to those times of spiritual darkness that may press down on our minds, even though they are evil and dangerous. He argues that it is the willful and deliberate renouncing of Christ. That is, of not holding on to Christ. Of seeking, just as these Hebrew believers, these Jewish believers, of returning to the old way, which has absolutely nothing of value, To remove us from sin and thus continuing in sin because of turning from Christ. And if we turn from Christ, what have we already asserted? What is there for us? What is there that can remove sin? What is there that can make atonement for sin? Nothing. There no longer remains any sacrifice for sin because you're not, we're not looking to Christ. There is no longer any sacrifice for sin for the Jewish believer, for the Mosaic covenant is done, and those sacrifices did not have the effect of providing eternal redemption from our sin nor is it anything else that we might possibly contrive. For to turn from Christ, to be a person who is not of faith, is a person who is turning to absolutely nothing, and therefore has only one possible expectation. What is it that is man's greatest fear? What do, we, what do we spend, and there's nothing wrong with trying to avoid this. I mean, it affirms life, just is an illustration. We have spent countless hours in research. We have spent countless dollars in research trying to do something to avoid death. We fear death. Death is our greatest fear as humans. There's something that goes, but there's a reason for that, because there's something else that we fear. It's not just death, but it's what's after death. Judgment. It is judgment that we fear. Why do we seek to avoid death? Because we are fearful of facing up to the facts. We are fearful of facing our, facing our maker and facing judgment. We may try to cover that up with all sorts of things. We may try to deny it and cover it up with argumentation or some sort of some sort of reasoning argument or some sort of argument from trying to look at evidence. The one thing, really, the one thing that apologetics can do for us—apologetics has never brought anybody to faith in Christ. It's always the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one thing apologetics can do is demonstrate reality. All of the arguments that are given are not legitimate. All they do, all they are doing is covering up. And rationalizing. Because there's a thing we fear that is judgment. And the result of this, the one who is not in faith has this expectation we see in verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. For the one who runs from Jesus Christ, for the one who does not look to him, but looks to another. This is an absolute truth. There can be no assurance or expectation of divine Salvation. Rather, there is only the fearful expectation of judgment. Only, that is the only expectation that such a person can be given, that such of which a person can be assured. He speaks of it in very picturesque terms but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Another thing that has enthralled humans in our history is fire. It enthralls us in that when it's cold, the idea of fire might warm us. But at the same time, the idea of fire absolutely terrifies us. Because because what what do we see in the aftermath of a great fire? Destruction. Devastation. In 2006, I-ish, that time frame, I don't know the exact year, I myself went on a backpacking trip with a friend of mine and we ended up, uh, uh, we were sleeping and in a, it it got down to 20 degrees that night and because we went in may thought thought it would be a bit warmer in the Rockies in May, but it turns out it wasn't and so we lit a fire, and there was some logs around it that appeared to have been really old, turns out it was an old logging trail, and it was the remnants of an old cabin and so we built our fire. we couldn't find much dry wood, so we used some some wet wood, some uh, green wood, and we put out the fire and went to sleep a couple hours later. My camping partner wakes me up and says. The fire restarted, and the entire structure was on fire. And I was scared to death because I was afraid, afraid of the destruction that the fire might bring. We used our entire water supply and other things and uh, dirt to finally put it out. So we did, not a mass, we did not create a wildfire. And so fire is a scary thing. This judgment of fire. And it's being counted in with the adverse adversaries. We look at Isaiah chapter 33 verses 13 and 14. And we can see that language of fire talked about the fire of judgment. And it's not just a temporal fire that comes to an end at some point in which the burning ends. Rather, it's a fire that continues. We see in Isaiah 33 verses 13 and 14 here. Here. You who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? The answer, of course, is no one. Of course, we mentioned earlier, Does this imply that one who truly has faith can then become counted among the reprobate? Among those who are eternally condemned? The answer to that question is no. For what did we read in verse 39? But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What is the implication of the one who has faith that he or she won't shrink back? That he or she won't shrink back. This is an exhortation to a group of people. Among whom are those who have made professions of faith. Some of whom are looking the other way. And he's urging them to believe. Also remember there's a whole host of things. uh, Between salvation and damnation. That is there's all sorts of suffering and difficulty. And discipline we can bring upon ourselves because we don't believe, because we are turning including when we turn from Christ we are giving ourselves to sinful behavior and can cause great difficulty and pain and consequences <clears throat> we might argue as John Owen and both John Calvin have said that This is is actually an illustration of what we might call the sin against the Holy Spirit that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 12, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Then a demon-possessed oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the Son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said... It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, is he divided against himself? How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges." But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can you or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder their goods? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. What is it that they are rejecting when he is speaking to these people? He is speaking, they are rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit about who Jesus is through his works. And thus, to turn from Christ is to turn from the testimony of the Spirit. Now, of course, many people have heard the message of Christ many times and have turned from it. And finally, the spirit works in them and they believe. Does that mean their previous turnings are unforgivable? No, it is speaking of with finality. One dies without having with having rejected, having heard and not received. All the more so cannot be forgiven of such sins. Even those who have not heard, are still in sin and have not heard that and have not received that word. Are condemned because of sin. The Spirit's, te- Holy Spirit's testimony of who Jesus is. To reject Jesus is to reject the only provision for sin that there ever could be. So for the one who forsakes Christ, who turns from that, we must say this. They can only be sure of one thing, the judgment of God. For they are showing... Like those addressed in 1 John. They were not of us, for if they were of us, they wouldn't have gone out from us. In 1 John, there's a group of people who have gone out from the community to whom, he's, to whom John is writing. And they're teaching something that essentially says that sin doesn't exist or it doesn't happen and also denying the reality of Christ and His incarnation, that He is the divine Savior made flesh. As believers, you may for a time turn from Christ, but those who are truly in faith will always return. Our in Articles of Faith, in chapter 17, paragraph 3, they say this, They may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve the whole His Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves, Nevertheless, they shall renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus until the end. Furthermore, coddling sin and cherishing it is something that can take our eyes off of Christ Jesus. We can be blinded by our own sin. and So we must continue to turn to Christ from our sin. The Christian life is the beginning of a life of Repentance. Begins with believing upon him. We also see that there's also a contrast between a contrast and comparison. In verse 29 and 30 with regards to punishment under the law and judgment in regards to Christ. He argues this. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy in the evidence of two or three witnesses. We search that and we've been at what we have been asserting that the covenant of law is an inferior covenant. But how much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? That we see, first of all, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 7, we see this worked out as an example. Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or woman, who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, is transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. The evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against him who put to death and afterward the hand of all the people. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. So here we see that under the old covenant, if there was one who was turning from the terms of that covenant, the terms of that covenant being do this and live, rooted in the law for life in the land, someone who rejected the terms of that covenant, there was a penalty. That penalty was to be given on the evidence of not just one, but two or three witnesses. And the one bearing witness was to carry out the punishment. It was a severe punishment. But then he does this contrast. We are in a superior covenant. The law had such severe punishment. How much more so for the one who has rejected the covenant of grace that is in Christ Jesus. Who has rejected the one who is the covenant. Rejected the one who is the terms of the covenant. Who has turned from that to something that is lesser and unable to do what Christ Jesus. As he says, how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For such a person has, is asserted, trampled underfoot the Son of God, who alone atones for sin, and is alone the priest by whom we live and by whom we endure. This is someone who has expressed that they have been a visible part of the body of Christ. The profession of faith has been made. They may have even done many things in the life, the body of Christ. This is one, but one who is. This is one who has but received the outward testimony of the blood of the covenant, but is not the inward application. They've been sanctified in this. They've been separate They had been separated from others by profession of faith, but still tied to those others. By lack of possessing it. By lack of possessing it. And thus have profaned the blood of the covenant. This is, and in so doing, has outraged God's spirit. Very similar to Hebrews chapter 6. In which what we saw in saying that one cannot be renewed to repentance. It is impossible to renew someone to that which is not theirs already. It is not that they need revival it is that they need a revival. You will oftentimes say, Lord, bring revival to this city. And my thought is, actually, what needs to happen is Bible needs to come. For one who does not have viving already cannot be revived. Or vivification is the proper word. and this judgment that is being faced is not a mere stoning or a temporal death or even an annihilation from existence rather this is an eternal judgment in the forever fire that we referenced earlier in Isaiah chapter 33 this is the only such thing that an apostate has to look has has to look forward to apart from turning to Christ such a person is not to be regarded as a wayward saint. Such a person is to be regarded as one who is to be warned that unless you receive Christ the Lord, you shall be eternally condemned for you are still in your sin. Just like in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, such a person is to be an object of evangelism just like those there. And the truth of this is rooted in the nature and character of God. For God will rain judgment and wrath down on humanity in its sin. For what does he say? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's a famous sermon preached by uh, the American preacher, American colonial preacher Jonathan Edwards, called "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God." And in this sermon, he gives the, he gives an illustration of a spider who is being held over who is over a burning flame, and he was has not fallen into the into the flame yet. And what is holding him up and keeping him from falling into that flame? We hear this sermon as being something that is just about the anger of God. In reality, he uses the anger of God to point to God's grace. Dripping from every page of that sermon is the grace of God. For he is calling them to turn to the grace of God. He's in the context of a problem known as the halfway covenant in which those who had not made profession of faith, even those who had rejected the gospel of Christ, but because they had been baptized in, as babies in, the, in, in that body, they were to be considered halfway covenant members of the church. Not in full covenant, but halfway covenant members. Of course, they did that because in order to vote there in the colonial, colonial era, era of um, Connecticut, they had to be members of the local congregational church. And so they were allowed to continue... Um, as members, even though they had rejected the truth of the gospel. And it was to these people, that, uh, to these folks, that Jonathan Edwards was preaching. And it ultimately got him fired. Because they wanted to keep their halfway covenant. But the idea is that it is only because God is holding, is, is, is holding on to that leg and keeping you from falling into the fire. He's waiting. He wants you to come to faith in Him. You see, this is not to be taken lightly. We cannot neglect the fact that God will indeed take it out on his enemies. And there's only one way in which one is not an enemy, and that is in Christ Jesus. And to turn from that is to turn to nothing. It is truly a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For to be in God's hands... To be in God's hands for the friend of God, for the believer, is a wonderful thing. But to be in the hands of God for the one who is an enemy of God is a fearful and terrible thing. But the very fact that such a person is still alive is also indicative of God's grace. For he, can still, he or she can be called to repentance. We may hear, and it's common to say, and I've heard people say this, I've seen people say this, oftentimes with confronted some sort of an error, and not always a religious error, just some sort of error. Someone respond with some sort of pride, say, well, only God can judge me. Or God is my judge. My thought is, yes, that's true. And that should absolutely terrify you. God in his grace waits. For he calls people to himself. And we should understand that, that when we have someone who we know someone who has turned from the gospel. They are to be treated as an unbeliever and a subject of evangelism. But for this passage, my brothers and sisters, for the believer, the one who's holding on to Christ, the one who's drawing near, the one who is holding on, the one who is in fellowship with his people. This should be of great encouragement to continue holding on to Jesus. Because the one in Christ has the exact opposite expectation of this hypothetical apostate in everything. For the one in Christ, Jesus does not have a fearful expectation of judgment, but a glorious expectation of eternal life in the presence of God through Christ Jesus. On account of Christ For in Christ, we have righteousness, forgiveness. We are being saved from our sin and will be saved, certainly and with absolute effect by Christ Jesus. And while death is an enemy for the believer that still has sting, we learn in 1 Thessalonians 4, he urges Christians not to grieve in the same way that unbelievers do, but rather He doesn't say don't grieve. He says, but let your essentially let your grief be tempered with the hope, with the hope of resurrection. It still stings, but death has been neutered for the one who is truly in Christ Jesus, but for the one who turns away from Christ. Here we see the impact of what is outside of Christ. To translate into several different languages and manners of speech, there's nothing there's nada. There's nil, There's nilch. Zilch. And there's nichts. There's nothing. For there is no provision for sin that can be sought if not in Christ Jesus. There is no other sacrifice. There's no sacrifice that remains because only Christ is the sacrifice. There is only judgment. And for that, death is absolutely terrifying regardless of how we may dress it up. Even in our language, in the ways that we talk about death, there's a comic who I would not recommend because he's a big potty mouth, but he has an interesting thing on euphemisms. He talks about how we will try to take the impact away of powerful words. And he talked about death. He said, we used to say people die. they they, they death. Now they pass away. It's all important for us to remember this. Because of this, it's all the more important to remember the exhortations from verses 19 to 25, to draw near, to hold on, to consider one another, how we might stir one another up to love and good works, that we might keep our eyes on Christ Jesus all in the context of assembling ourselves together. So we can see why not doing these things, why neglecting such a great salvation, neglecting to draw near, to hold on, to consider one another, and to not assemble together. When we, we are literally playing with fire. And so let's hold, on, let's hold one another to this. And remember, as mentioned earlier, there's a lot of ground. There's a lot of ground between firm holding on to Christ and absolute apostasy. And there's a lot of pain and destruction in taking our eyes off of Jesus. A lot of damage we can do to others. So let us exhort one another to keep our eyes on him by faith, living in him and growing in him. Exhort one another to hold on to Christ as if nothing else matters. Because in light of eternity, nothing else truly does matter. So we may hold on to Christ. For it is those who hold on to Christ who are his. So let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the great grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. We pray, O Father, that you would continue to help us to hold on to him. Because you hold on to us. Father, we ask that you would lead us in your way. Lead us in your truth. We pray that Christ would be the most real thing to us. We pray these things, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.